Bye, Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video, I'm going to talk about two instances in The Lord of the Rings that form a really strong parallel, which I never noticed until recently. And one of the things that I find really fascinating about parallels is it's one of the more versatile, but also more powerful tools in any author's toolkit. And the story, in my opinion, that really Tolkien does the most with this tool is the story of Turin Turumbar. And I'm planning one of these days to do a video on the many parallels that exist within that story. But parallels can do many things. They can serve many purposes for the author. They can tell us, in Turin's example a lot about how Turin himself changes over time as a character. If you look at the parallels within his story, a lot of them are about the two ends of his life and how he's radically changed as a person. And, you know, that's one thing that you can do with a parallel. But there are many other things that you can do with a parallel. So you always have to be careful about, you know, what's the point of this parallel? Is it just a parallel for parallel's sake to be interesting, or is there a, a reason behind it? And this is something that, you know, Corey Olson will point out a lot in his Exploring the Lord of the Rings series. Just because Tolkien is using a particular, you know, motif or trick of, you know, writing or something like that, you can't just assume that there's a meaning behind it, and you shouldn't just jump to conclusions. You should really think about the actual story. So what I'm going to do in this video is talk about the parallel of Sam Gamgee and Baragond and their respective judgments by others, and then we're going to look at why this parallel exists, perhaps. So the parallel itself is based on two events, one very early in the story and one very, very late in the story, which is another thing about parallels. They often happen kind of in a sort of, you know, if you look at the midpoint of the story, you can kind of gauge where the parallels are going to be found by looking at equidistant points from that center point, roughly speaking, of course. Sam's event, of course, is when he gets caught by Gandalf eavesdropping, although there ain't no eaves in Bag End. Uh, eavesdropping on Gandalf and Frodo as they're talking about the ring and whatnot. G Sam, of course, is afraid that Gandalf is going to do something nasty to him with magic, and Frodo kind of plays along with this a little bit. But what Gandalf does is he says, I've thought of a better use for you, something to punish you properly for, you know, your, your actions, and he says, you're going to go with Mr. Frodo. Now, of course... As soon as he says this, Sam is extremely happy because he wants to see the elves, and that's where Frodo is going. He's going to see the elves in Rivendell. Ignore the movie that says that, hey, just go to Bree. That's not really the... That's not how that works in the book. So, in the book, he's off to see the elves, and that's why Sam is happy. He's like, oh, me go and see elves at all? And he gets all happy. So, Gandalf is punishing Sam... But he's punishing him with a reward, which is interesting, right? This is a fascinating thing. Why is he doing this? He's doing it because, A, the punishment is still real. Sam is going to go through hell and back on this trip with Sam, with Frodo, and Gandalf probably realizes that, that the, the punishment is real in a sense. But he's also not really trying to punish him in a sense, because 
he knows that Sam was doing what he was doing out of a, a good motive. He was, you know, listening in because he, you know, cares about Frodo and he wants Frodo's, you know, well-being. And so he also knows that Frodo is going to need help on his journey. So he puts all of these things together and says, well, the solution to this is Sam will, you know, he will receive some not so pleasant stuff out of this trip, which will kind of maybe teach him a lesson about sticking his nose into his better's business as his own father, the gaffer would advise against. But it will also solve the problem of who to send with Frodo as a companion whom he can trust and also give Sam something as a reward for actually looking out for the the good of his master Frodo. Now let's look at Baragond. Baragond, of course, his judgment comes at the hands of Aragorn after the victory is achieved and everything else, but the reason he's being judged is because in the Silent Street and in the, the area where they have all the tombs of the kings, he killed another... Uh, I don't think it was actually a guard or anything like that, but one of Denethor's servants who was trying to bring, you know, kindling and, and fire-starting material so as to burn Denethor and Faramir alive. At Denethor's command, uh, Pippin, of course, had warned him of what was going on, and Baragon was like, I can't leave my post. And Pippin's like, well, you gotta choose. You either gotta leave your post, or you gotta let Faramir die. Uh, well, of course, he chooses to go defend Faramir. In the process of trying to defend Faramir, he's blocking the door to the the, the uh, mausoleum or whatever that Denethor and Faramir are in, and he's fighting off the people trying to get in, and he kills one of them. Not because he's maliciously trying to just kill people, but just in defending against multiple attackers, sometimes things happen, right? So, it's unlawful to shed blood in this area. It's also unlawful to desert your post. It's also unlawful to disobey the lord of the city, Denethor. So, at the end of the story, Aragorn is judging him, and he's basically saying, you know, you did this unlawful thing, and so you can no longer be a member of the Guard of the Citadel, which, though Baragond is a kind of a nobody in in real terms, his position as a guard of the of the citadel in the you know the soldiery was a pretty good one he didn't hold any high rank or anything like that but it was considered a position of honor at least according to his son Bergil and theoretically he would know <clears throat> there's an interesting point here which I'm going to come back to about his relative nobodiness because that is also part of the parallel uh, but Aragorn what he ends up saying is you can no longer be in this and when he says that Baragon you know, he's very crestfallen. He's like, oh, man. Now, he's not being put to death either because that would have been the natural, kind of normal consequence for this sort of thing. And then Aragorn immediately follows it up with, which, of course, you can't be because you're going to be the captain of Faramir's own personal, you know, whatever, in Ithilien, since he's going to be the prince of Ithilien. And this, of course, makes Baragond really happy because... Of course, the reason he did everything he did was in service to Faramir, whom he loved as a captain and leader. And this is an effect that Faramir had on a lot of people, right? But Baragond, we get to see up close his affinity for and respect for 
Faramir in a few different scenarios where he, you know, either talks about him with Pippin or observes him and and is, you know, talking about what he's seeing and that sort of thing. So we know how Baragon feels about Faramir. So he is also punished with a reward. It is still a punishment. He's being stripped of his role that would have, you know, been a thing that he considered a high status type of thing, sort of. And as a result, that is a sort of punishment, but he is also, at the end of the day, really getting something better because what he is doing is being moved with Faramir to Athelion to serve Faramir and kind of being, you know, elevated in, in some ways too. So this whole process of the judgment here is again taking similar, you know, things from that instance of Gandalf kind of judging Sam, if you want to look at it that way. He is doling out a punishment, but also really benefiting him. The punishment is not as much of a punishment, you might say, as what Sam gets, because he he's not likely to have to go through hell and back in, in serving Faramir at this point. But it does possibly put him in a position of some danger, because Athelion is still at this point the, you know, the outer frontier, Easter, in, in terms of the eastern direction, of Gondor. And there are still enemies out there, so it's not like he's just going to have a cushy job where he has to do nothing. But it's also a reward, because he loves Faramir, he wants to serve Faramir, and it also solves part of the problem of if Faramir is going to be a prince in Ithilien, he's going to need his own soldiery there to, you know, have his own little princedom sort of thing, much like the Prince of Dol Amroth does, Imrahil. So, it does a lot of the same things. It solves a problem, it doles out a sort of punishment, but overall the effect is actually a reward. Now, the one thing that I wanted to come back to was Baragond, like I said, is kind of a nobody. His position as a guard of the Citadel is considered, at least by his son Bergil, to be a rather important one, and I'm sure it is. But one of the interesting things about that is that is a very strong parallel as well with the fact that Sam is a nobody. He's a gardener. He's got no position, no you know status in society. Frodo, on the other hand, is a if eccentric, a very well-known and respected hobbit within the Shire. He's not like the Thane of the Shire or the Master of Buckland, but the, you know, the, ba- the Bagginses of Hobbiton are well-respected and well-known. And especially after Bilbo came back with a bunch of treasure, he is also very well-respected by the lower classes to whom Bilbo was very kind and, and familiar, more so than would be the Sackville Bagginses, let's say. <laughs> Uh, Baragon similarly is kind of a nobody. You know, he doesn't have any title, he doesn't have any, you know, whatever. Which is interesting, because one of the things that Bergil tells us is that his father is one of the tallest members of the Citadels of the Guard, or of the Guards of the Citadel. And usually, in Tolkien, when you're very tall, it's correlated to some kind of leadership position. But Baragon has none. So it's really interesting to me that Baragond is one of the few examples that we know of who is a a very tall individual, at least based on what we know, who doesn't have any real status or leadership position. Sam, of course, is in the same boat. We don't know that much about Sam's height. For all we know, he's perfectly average. But the point being, they're both really low men on the totem pole compared to 
the people that they are serving. Frodo is much higher status than Sam. He's basically like landed gentry compared to Sam's, you know, just regular common worker. And of course, Denethor is the lord of the city of Minas Tirith, and Faramir, you know, is next after him now that Boromir's dead. And Baragond is just a soldier. So there's a lot of parallels between these two events. And like I said, one comes very early in the story, the other comes very near the end of the story. So these parallels bookend the whole thing very well. Now, why is this parallel important? What is the point of the parallel? You know, you could do a lot of things with parallels, and one of those things that you could do is just say that, oh, well, that's just a really cool you know, way to book in the story is to have two things that are very similar, you know, at the very beginning and very end. But I think this one actually serves a deeper purpose than that. And the purpose it serves is actually to highlight something about Aragorn, which has been sort of a theme beginning from at least early two towers, arguably from further back. If you if you've listened to the Exploring Lord of the Rings series, Corey Olson talks about how even in the trip from Bree to Weathertop, Aragorn doesn't always seem totally sure of himself. He's like, when he's talking to Frodo about their path ahead, he's like, I think we should do this. And it, the, the way it's framed in the context seems like it's he's kind of guessing, and he's not really 100% sure what he's going to do or or what the best thing to do is. And he gets lost at one point on the road to Rivendell as well. They go a little more out of their way than they were supposed to, and you know. So, and this becomes more prominent after the death of Boromir because he's kind of beaten on himself, saying, you know, every decision I've made has been terrible. Gandalf being gone has just left me in this position that I have to make all these decisions, and I'm doing a terrible job at it. Now, he will also express this kind of explicitly with Gandalf because after the victory and everything he and Gandalf will go up onto the slopes of Mindolowin, the the mountain that forms the back part of the city of Minas Tirith, and they'll be talking about, you know, things. Gandalf's going to be telling him about, you know, the him being the king and the future and how things are going to go a little bit. And Aragorn will say, you know, I'm really sad that you're going to leave because I really wish you could stay around and advise me. So he's still in his own mind, wishes that he had somebody, you know, very wise to help counsel him in the things that he's going to be doing, which, you know, any any smart person in his position would, because, let's face it, if you're about to become king for the first time, even Aragorn, who's 87 years old, might be daunted by the prospect of suddenly having all this responsibility that he's never had before. And this is a a motif that comes up in C.S. Lewis as well, because Prince Caspian, whenever uh, at the near the end of his first book, will you know be in the position of he's about to become king because he's defeated King Miraz. He will you know be asked by Aslan, "Do you feel ready to become king?" And Caspian says, "I don't think I am." And Aslan says, "Good, because if you thought you were, it would be proof that you weren't." Right? There's a certain amount of humility that is being urged upon leaders and would-be leaders in these stories. It's like, you know, don't don't think that you're smart enough to do it all. If you are humble enough to realize that you're not smart enough to do it all, then you'll probably at least do okay. 
so it's a really interesting comparison there. But Aragorn is expressing his doubts to Gandalf himself. Now, the interesting thing about this is Gandalf has already recognized that Aragorn is a smart guy and is wise in his own right. He has told Pippin in Minas Tirith, uh, he's been musing over some events, trying to figure out what's going on, and then he realizes, oh, what if Aragorn looked in the Palantir? And he goes off on kind of a little monologue, talking half to himself, and he mentions to Pippin, Aragorn is... I don't remember all the words he uses, but he will also end up saying he's able to take his own counsel. Aragorn is smart enough to come up with his own plans and do his own things. And of course, Aragorn does do that for a good chunk of the story. And even his decisions that he himself feels are subpar end up being pretty good decisions, as it turns out. Uh, It's not always obvious that that's the case from his perspective in the moment, but in the hindsight, it's like, could he have really done any better? Probably not. I mean, he's doing a pretty good job. So, Gandalf has already recognized that Aragorn is a smart guy, perfectly capable of doing things on his own, with his own wit, wisdom, and, you know, the the resources that he just has. So why is this significant, ultimately? Because Aragorn is copying Gandalf in his judgment of Baragond. Not consciously, he doesn't probably doesn't know a thing about what Gandalf did with Sam, but it was Gandalf who did that to Sam, and now Aragorn is doing the exact same thing on his own, and this is the point, I think, of the parallel. The point of the parallel is to show us, the reader, though not Aragorn himself personally in the story, that... Aragorn already has the wisdom of Gandalf in a lot of ways. He already knows how to do the same kinds of things that Gandalf is doing. And so he doesn't actually need Gandalf's counsel, you know, just sitting there to for him to fall back on in any kind of difficult case. He is already doing the kinds of things that Gandalf was doing from, you know, from however far back. This one example of what Gandalf does, which solves so many problems, how to punish Sam, how to reward Sam, and how to solve another problem that just happens to be out there. All at the same time, with the same ruling, right? This shows us that Aragorn has the same kind of wisdom that Gandalf has, and therefore it tells us that, yes, he will be a good king. He will be able to rule with both justice and mercy and wisdom which are, you know, from the point of view of the monarchical system, are a kind of the trifecta of things you want your monarch to have. If he's the final judge of hard cases, which is kind of what a traditional old-school monarch is in a lot of ways, then you want him to be both just and merciful when, it, when called for, and wise in terms of figuring out how to solve hard cases. So he's got all of these qualities, which we have already seen Gandalf exhibit in his own actions with Sam. And so we as the reader, if we're picking up on this, when Aragorn is having his conversation with Gandalf, we already know, well, you've already proved that you're smart enough to do this on your own, Aragorn. You've already done it. So it's a really clever way of Tolkien inserting 
you know, two different things that are so far apart in the story that you would probably never put them together unless you were just really thinking about it, or if inspiration just happens to strike, as it did in my case. But it, when you do put those things together, it answers questions that are within the story itself, not in a way, of course, that satisfies Aragorn, but in ways that satisfy us as the reader. And this is, you know, I hate, I hate to bring this up almost, but there was that whole thing, and I did a video on it way back, of uh, George R. R. Martin talking about, well, how do we know that Aragorn was a good king? You know, what was his tax policy and all this stuff? And, you know, I mean, you could take that as being kind of, uh, you know, just a smart-alecky comment trying to poke fun. But Tolkien has actually told us quite a lot. He hasn't just been like, and Aragorn was a great king and happy lived, everybody lived happily ever after, right? That's not what Tolkien does. He is never that simplistic. What he does is he gives us the information in a way that if you're picking up on it, will tell you how we know Aragorn will be a good king. He is wise, he is just, he is merciful. You put those things together, that's going to end up, you know, serving him well in terms of being a good king. So that's what this parallel does at the end of the day. It is not merely just a cool, oh look, these two similar events that happened at the, you know, beginning and end of the story. It is cool by itself, but it also serves this deeper purpose. And I think that that is a real testament to Tolkien's storytelling ability. He is able to do things which look at the whole scope of the story in ways that many other storytellers are not as good at. That's not to say that nobody else can do it. Plenty of other people can do it. But it's rare to find that level of subtlety in a story. It's just, and it, it's really hard to do in, in certain types of storytelling, too. You know, especially with a story as long and as, you know, involved as The Lord of the Rings is. So, I just think that that's a really cool insight into how Tolkien tells his stories, the way he uses these different tricks of the trade, as it were, as a writer, to really deepen and, you know, just give more oomph to his story for people willing to dig into it and really pick up on things that are not obvious. So, that being said, I hope you enjoyed this video. Please give it a like and share it around if you did. Make sure you subscribe if you want to catch my future content. Click the bell icon if you're on YouTube so you don't miss any notifications. Check the description below for support links, other platform links, and my social links. On Twitter, of course, you can catch my Tolkien-related trivia questions multiple times per week. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all my channel supporters, especially Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Nathan Dufour, and Paul Leone.